Hi, I am Griffin Dunn, and I have just opened my veins for the past two hours to uh, Gilbert Gottfried for his amazing Colossal podcast. I told him things I'm so ashamed of. You must listen. Bye. Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast with my co-host Frank Santo Padre and our engineer Frank Verderosa. Well, we had so much success with our recent Marx Brothers panel that we're trying something similar this week to mark the 60th anniversary of a TV series that made its debut way back in 1959 and a show we've talked about extensively on this podcast, a little program called The Twilight Zone. Author, screenwriter, trading card king, and former podcast guest, Gary Gerani has written extensively about the Twilight Zone, most notably in his essential 1977 book, Fantastic Television. He's also provided audio commentaries for the Twilight Zone Blu-ray editions on episodes including Living Doll, The Howling Man, Night of the Meek, Eye of the Beholder, Writer, editor, and author Nicholas Parisi serves on the board of the Rod Serling Memorial Foundation dedicated to preserving and promoting Rod Serling's legacy and is the author of a terrific comprehensive volume on Serling's prolific career. 2018's Rod Serling, His Life, Work, and Imagination. And finally, Anne Serling is a teacher, lecturer, writer who has adopted two of her father's teleplays into short stories. One for the angels and the changing of the guard. She's also the author of a very touching and enlightening memoir about her father as I knew him, my dad, Rod Serling. And now we all step into the Twilight Zone. <laughs> here, here we are. Hey, guys. Hello, everybody. Hey. Hi, everybody. Hi, Anne. <laughs> we, we, we're doing something different, too. We have Gary on Skype. We have uh, Anne in the phone, and uh, Nick is right here with us in person, touching all bases in, in the New York studio. And we've been so we've been sitting here, Anne, talking about favorite episodes, well, which is a great way to begin, actually. Which is a great way to begin. Sure. Yeah. So, so tell us something too. I wanted to ask you something from the from the book, Anne. Which is, well, I'm going to start off with something touching. You wrote in the book in Twilight Zone reruns. I search for my father in the man on the screen, but I can't always find him there. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Because it's really at the heart of what the book is about. 
Right. It, well, you know, that black and white image is not, is not the father that I knew. It's, it's, that's the man that the public knew. But the, the, the father that I knew uh, was a, so completely different from that image. He was brilliantly funny, warm, um, just kind, kind guy. And, and I think people are intimidated by, you know, who the, the person that they see on television. I know my friends were, and then when they would meet him in person, it was, it was so very different. He really comes across as a funny person if you read the book. I mean, right, which, which he was, which he was. Although it must have been so real, especially back then, coming face to face with Roth Sterling, for someone who didn't know him. Yeah, because well, I, I guess you would you would buy the image of the man from, yeah. from television. It would be like meeting Boris Karloff or someone like, oh my God. Yeah, or Alfred Hitchcock. Yeah, or Hitchcock. Yeah, yeah. A friend of mine, um, we were going out to dinner with my dad, and she was so afraid to meet him because as I said, thought. <laughs> going to be the Twilight Zone guy, and she she was so surprised, and, and she you wrote me, you know, within moments, um, her impression was so very different from what she anticipated. Now, now your father was trying to carve out uh, a meager living as like, what, I think a copywriter early on? Right. Right, and and um, he he wrote several scripts, but he was he was trying to to make his mark, and and um, Nick could, Nick could probably speak to this uh, with sure. a lot of information. Right. Well, yeah, essentially copyright. He, he worked from radio, so he was writing uh, continuity patter for for DJs and things like that, and he was writing you know uh, commercials and uh, endorsements and you know things like that uh, in Cincinnati and radio in Cincinnati. But at the same time, he was writing his own scripts and sending them out and constantly getting rejected, as you know most novice writers are. Uh, and right. eventually, he finally broke through. How, how many scripts did he did he submit before? Uh, uh, you know, he he said he had at least forty rejection slips, and I think that's not an exaggeration. He had at least forty rejection slips from radio and television uh, before he sold really anything, um, and it was much longer before he really broke through and became a real success. But before he sold anything, at least forty scripts were rejected by by TV and radio. How about you have that? to have a, a real thick thick skin as a writer because you're going to get a lot of rejections, particularly if you're a fiction writer. I mean, you can try to squeeze in with nonfiction. It's a little easier. But fiction is very, very hard, and you got to get used to the rejections because it may take some time. But, you know, you keep going because you have the love and the crazy passion for it. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to add that my my dad did not set out to be a writer. Uh, Before he went into the war, his plan was to, when he went to Antioch College, to major in um, in physical education because he, he wanted to work with kids. And as he said, the war changed all of that. He he was so traumatized, as any vet is. He said that he had to get it out of his gut. He had to write it down. And that's when he changed to language and literature and became a writer. That there was that one Twilight Zone, Death's Head Revisited, that takes place in a concentration camp. Right. And and that was one of the few episodes where he closed the closing narration said a lesson not only to be learned in the twilight zone but wherever man walks on earth. It's very I, powerful. I, yeah. And and that had that actor who was in another twilight zone Oscar Her- 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 Her-
Yeah. He was in another Twilight Zone. There he played like the Nazi officer who revisits Dachau. Yeah, and he was, very, he was very good as a Nazi. That that actor sure. he played a, played a lot of <laughs> oh, Nazis. Yes. <laughs> while, while, while we're on the subject of Nazis, I want to move to. Uh, and he Ann. was a Jew. Yes, he was a German <laughs> yeah. Jew. And, and Ted, what what sitcom did your father hate more than any other sitcom? Oh, it was uh, was it Hogan's Heroes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I found that in Ann's book, and it was very interesting. Yeah, he he had a great distaste for it for 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 treating the Nazi Germany with, with with levity. Right, any kind of humor he found he found that completely inappropriate. Yeah, yeah, clearly. And since we're talking about his war experiences and how it changed him, it was fascinating. I didn't know that he was almost killed by a Japanese soldier. Right, and and saved by a friend of his who who shot the uh, soldier over my dad's shoulder. Yeah, amazing, Incredible, amazing. Right, and and so the war changed him. I mean, there's something in your book, and 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 maybe get the wording right for me because I'm 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 I'll piece it together sloppily. But something about a vow or a promise that he made to himself. Um, I'm I'm not exactly well, sure. Well, that he, that he would never that he would never try to he would never harm anyone. Or any right. li- or any living thing after he had this right. experience, right? Well, you know, again, like like any vet, my my dad was so broken by the war, and that was one of the most difficult things about writing my book was to read the letters that he was writing to his parents when he was still in training camp. And you know, he was eighteen years old, and I, when I was writing those, my son was eighteen, so I had a real close up look of, of an eighteen year old, and it was just. It was devastating to me that to read these letters, I mean, it was like he was away at summer camp having no comprehension of what he was about to deal with. Do you, do you think he had, you, you mentioned in the book that he may have suffered from PTSD for the rest of his life. Oh, not, not may have. I, I, you know, again, like any vet, he definitely did. He, 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 would, have nightmares. he would have nightmares that the enemy was coming at him, and I, and I would hear him screaming in the middle of the night. And I would ask him in the morning, what's the matter? And, that, and he would tell me, you know, that, I, I, again, I, I thought the enemy was coming at me. So you, it you know, it's, comp- it's, it's, so, it's so, you know, interesting that you mention that because, you know, my dad served in World War II and he used to have those kind of nightmares too. I'd be in my room and I would hear him uh, crying in his sleep, yelling in his sleep. And I finally mm-hmm. asked him, and he says, yeah, he was reliving some of those memories. So, yeah, that, that sticks with you forever, sadly. Right, and they didn't have the help, you know, back then, and, or the awareness of what was going on. So that, yeah. that, there wasn't that even the term PTSD back right. then. Right, it, it wasn't exactly. Even, uh, shell, shell, shell shock. shock or, and, you know. Right, right, right. Okay. Nick, can we assume, too, that, that, that this anti-war, I mean, this, this experience is what, what led him to write so many stories that were anti-war stories. Oh, absolutely. Uh, but I, but I did. I think I do clarify in the book that I wouldn't necessarily consider him completely anti-war. In fact, he said he wasn't anti-all war. He wasn't. He wasn't a knee-jerk anti-war mm-hmm. pacifist. Um, he was against the Vietnam War, but he eventually became against the Vietnam War. He had to gradually get there. He didn't start off against the Vietnam War. He was the type of guy who, who required 
data. He required information. He would sure. he would think about these things, and he eventually became a, an anti-war activist against the Vietnam War. But really, what the what his experiences did was give him the sensitivity of of knowing what those soldiers are going through and knowing that war has to be the last resort. And you don't send these guys over to do things that aren't uh, absolutely one hundred percent necessary. Uh, so it just gave him that awareness of the horrors of war that you know not the average person just doesn't have. We we haven't experienced it, obviously, and 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 he did. So he was uh, you know especially sensitive about it. Did did Sherling ever see the camps? I and I don't know that actually. If he ever actually went back and saw the camps, did he? Do you know? I you know I don't I don't know the answer to that. I wish I could ask him. I I think not, but I couldn't be absolutely. I couldn't mm-hmm. say that with absolute certitude. Not not during the war. I can tell you that. Yeah. that's for sure. I mean, he served in the Philippines. Yeah, and then in Japan. Right. Um, but yeah, but um, so he never went to Germany during service. One one thing that you could see affected Serling and uh, through the Twilight Zone episodes is the the taste of the fifties. The uh, you know the whole Russian scare. Oh yeah, certainly, and, certainly in like the monsters or two. Yes, yeah. yes, yeah, absolutely. And also, also the you know the irrational fear and bigotry and prejudices that can come out of the Cold War and a fear of the outsider. I mean, that episode was more about the monsters inside ourselves than whatever we have to be afraid of from from out there. So yeah, he he definitely jumped into that, and the Twilight Zone wound up being a perfect platform for saying all these things. Yeah, I, I actually think a lot of the Twilight Zones are about the monster within ourselves. <laughs> Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and he he, you, you, there's a quote in the book that he called prejudice the 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 evil of the world or the evil of our lifetimes. Right, right, and I and I vividly remember him talking about that. He was he was quite passionate and livid about everything that was happening, and um, very very vocal, even at the dinner table about all that. There's a there's a story, and and Nick can elaborate on this too. This is not a Twilight Zone uh, story, but um, that he he himself, and this is very strange, was accused of anti-Semitism by another popular author, by Leon Uris. <laughs> Which yes. is kind of sick. Can yes. you explain yeah. the uh, the circumstances well, surrounding was, that? Yeah, this is a Playhouse ninety that he wrote called "In the Presence of Mine Enemies." Uh, it was a it was a, a show about the Warsaw Ghetto, about the the uprising in the Warsaw Ghetto, and um, Rod Serling had the you know the temerity to include in this uh, particular show a, a Nazi soldier who was not a completely evil robot automaton Nazi. He was, he had a soul. He had a sensitivity. And and in this particular show, um, this soldier is ordered to get um, a Jewish family's daughter to bring to a Nazi captain to be raped. I mean, he knew this is what he was bringing her to, to uh, bringing her for. And he does it. And afterward, he breaks down to the rabbi father of this daughter saying, I, you know, apologizing, saying I haven't slept since this happened. I, I, uh, you know, I have, you know, I can't eat. I can't sleep. Um, and he seems sincere. Well, this particular um, characterization of this Nazi um, really rubbed Leon Uris the wrong way. Uh, the author of Exodus. The author of Exodus, yeah. and and actually Leon Uris a year later wrote his own version of the of the uh, of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising called uh, Mila Thir- Mila Eighteen, I think it was called a uh, novel. But um, but yeah, he was offended particularly by this this uh, this characterization, which oh by the way 
Broadway was played by Robert Redford yes, yes. in his television debut yes. um, years before he was on The Twilight Zone. And um, yeah, so so a certain things in this particular show rubbed uh, him the wrong way. And also not just him, but, you know, a lot of other uh, Jewish leaders and the CBS got hate mail they got you know they got phone calls and everything and and rod sterling was uh he was he was really really hurt by this because obviously he was as far from anti-semitic as he could possibly be and he of was course. he was just is, uh he was really is, hurt by it this yeah. has happened in some other cases too i mean marlon brando uh got grief uh when he was in the young lions because the nazi character he was playing was sort of you know portrayed in a sympathetic way they you know didn't flinch from what the horrors were but uh, it was a very, very difficult transitional time. People who had just, you know, gone through the war, of course, and uh, it, you know, they didn't want to see Nazis, you know, portrayed in anything other than that kind of really animalistic way. And uh, it was tough for writers. You know, you had mentioned uh, 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 Nick in your book that James Franciscus plays a Nazi with a little bit of a conscience uh, uh, in the Twilight Zone. Exactly. Because it was in the context of a fantasy episode, there were no complaints, which is, of course, what made the Twilight Zone so useful. You could say all these things and get away with them. And that brings us to his genius stroke, which is how he found a way to write the issues of the day, to write things, to write about things that maybe were not so sponsor-friendly, maybe weren't so network-friendly, by putting them into a fantasy context. I just wanted to say what Robert Redford, who, who played the German sh- soldier, said he thought the script was courageous and he was honored to be a part of it. It's funny with the young lions, though. I heard Brando in one of his early craziness. He wants when he dies at the end of the young lions. Yeah, I know where this is going. Yeah, he wanted a fall on barbed wire with his arms outstretched, <laughs> like Christ. Like and and I heard Montgomery Cliff said, if if he makes this Nazi bastard into Christ, I'm walking off this fucking movie. <laughs> Unbelievable. I know. So, so Nick, he's toy- he's toiling away, writing for Playhouse ninety for the U.S. Steel Hour. He's having problems with censorship er- er- early on, right? But this is long before the Twilight Zone is even a gleam in his eye. Oh yeah, yeah. He he started running into problems with censorship and problems with the sponsors, uh, pretty much after Patterns. I mean, Patterns was his Patterns, breakthrough. Yes. January of nineteen fifty-five. That was the the big breakthrough for Rod Serling. It was a huge hit um, on Craft Theater, uh, January of nineteen fifty-five. And and today it's kind of it's it's hard to imagine what we mean when we say it was a big hit because it was just I mean it was just one show. It was you know it was, it was one. Show. Well, how big of a hit could it be? Well, back then a show like this it was treated almost like it was a Broadway opening night. You know, you know, the next day when the reviews came in for Patterns and they were be off the charts, I mean, you know, Jack Gould in the New York Times said it was the, it was the best thing that's ever been on television, you know, essentially. Yeah, that's in your book. Yeah, and, and, and so it made Rod Sterling a star overnight, literally made him a star overnight. And from that point forward, when he had that name and he had the prestige and he had a little bit, he was a little bit more financially uh, secure also, he said, I'm going to start addressing these subjects that are important to me, like prejudice. And as soon as he tried to, uh, he ran up against the sponsors and the network censors, and he just he just couldn't do it. He 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 couldn't do it in television. And eventually, yes, he uh, you know he went into the twilight zone, and he was able to you know do these things through allegory and you know through science fiction and fantasy, and and that was you know that was his brilliant uh, his brilliant stroke to do it that way. Serling told that story, and I saw a clip of it. And that was where they did one live, they did one show on TV 
that took place in a concentration camp, and they bleeped out gas chambers because they had, like, uh, gasoline. You know what yeah, he's the, referring yeah, to? Was, yeah, yeah, the yeah. gas company was one of the sponsors. And they, they, they didn't, they, they, they didn't oh want God. the gas of the gas chambers to be associated <laughs> with their, with their uh, you know, stoves, you know? So, <laughs> yeah, as if anybody, <laughs> yeah, 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 anybody right. couldn't make that <laughs> distinction, you know? But, Jeez. yeah, that's how bad it was back then. So, uh, so Ann, he, he cleverly, your dad cleverly figures out that that there is a way to get these stories written to to tackle prejudice and intolerance and anti-Semitism on on network television. Right, and his quote was he he discovered that a, that an alien could say what a Democrat or a Republican couldn't. Yes, so profound. That, yeah. You know, it's always interesting to me. You know, was that all part of his master plan? Well, I'm going to come in with this fantasy show, and gee, you know, because there are. Aliens and flying saucers and pixies and all these things. Hey, they won't take it seriously, and then I'll be able to sneak in all of my major important messages. Or do you think that just kind of happened by accident? Because when you, well, you know, I- in his initial interviews on the Twilight Zone, there's this whole feeling of, yeah, I'm shying away from doing all these, you know, heavy social kind of things. Oh, well, you know, we're just going to be doing fantasy. But obviously, within fantasy, you can make all these points. So I was just curious how much of that was his master plan to begin with. Well, I, I don't think it was his master plan. I think yeah. it was the, the thing that you referenced about the, the gas companies uh, and the sponsors. It was, I mean, he, I think that's probably stunned him that he, that he couldn't write these stories without disguising them. And, and he was once quoted also as saying that it was a writer's job to menace the public's conscience. So he, he wanted to do it in, in the way that he could get it aired. Yeah, and not only that, I make the point in the book, I think that the the idea of that, that Rod Sterling uh, created the Twilight Zone and went into the Twilight Zone solely to do this to get past the sponsors is a little bit overstated. Okay. Um, I mean, he did, and he did. I mean, he said it en- enough times himself to say that, yeah, that is one reason he did it. But the other reason he did it was he always wanted to do a show like the Twilight Zone. He loved science fiction and he loved fantasy. And back when he was writing, we talked about in Cincinnati back in 1951, uh, he was writing for a show called The Storm in Cincinnati where he had a ton of freedom because it wasn't really seen by a lot of people. And he wrote a lot of fantasy and science fiction because uh, he just he had the freedom to do it. So when he broke into network television, he didn't have the freedom to, to write science fiction and fantasy because it was looked at as a as a as a as a genre for eight year olds. It wasn't serious drama. Sure. A serious writer would not write science fiction and fantasy. So, but he always had it in the back of his mind that he wanted to write science fiction and fantasy. And once he had these problems with the sponsors, and he had a name for himself, and CBS gave him the opportunity to do his own show, he said, "All right, well, you know what? I'm going to do that science fiction show I've always wanted to do. And oh, by the way, I'll probably be able to get away with some of the stuff that I've been trying to get away with in regular drama if I do it in this science fiction and fantasy context." So he had a real kind of have your cake and eat it too. Uh, relationship with the Twilight Zone. It, it was best, the best of both worlds for As him. luck would have it. Yeah. One, one thing uh, Serling said in an interview, and I thought when I first heard this, I thought it, it was him being sarcastic. And then they actually showed a clip of it, and he said something like, it's very hard to build a feeling on TV when you're you're interrupted with uh, rabbits dancing with toilet paper, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, and they actually showed this cartoon with rabbits and toilet paper. <laughs> yeah, it's an actual paper. commercial. Yeah, yeah. yeah, he wasn't kidding. Something in your book, yeah. maybe it was in Anne's book, where it was. I just found it depressing. It was like he almost had to apologize for having this vision and having this insight. Where he he was saying, you know, that he had to pretend that he had no desire to educate or enlighten. 
right. yeah, yeah, you might be talking about the uh, the Mike Wallace interview. Yes, that's what of, I'm referring to. Yeah, yeah, where he kind because of because Wallace was dismissive of the genre. Yes, and and he's kind of what Gary was talking about about he kind of was uh, you know backpedaling from oh, I'm not going to do any real social commentary on this show. <laughs> it's not a, it's not that kind of well, show. And he was he was really he knew he was going to. Well, do that was clever. Contact. That that part of yes, it is calculated. Yeah, yeah. Now, yeah, now yeah. did we, sir? We also mention uh, that uh, the whole idea of why science fiction fantasy all of this stuff was held in in such low regard during this period i mean you think about it for a second my goodness you know jules verne hg wells hg wells wrote war of the worlds we've been talking about using science well that was his way of attacking the british imperialism saying how how would you like it if someone came in and took over this way so science fiction actually had a very proud history but at this moment in time with the greatest generation kind of in charge, people who had a very, very tremendously real sense of the real world. They survived the Depression. They fought in World War II. And fantasy was just thought of as kid stuff for mm-hmm. this period of time, which is why it was so hard to be taken seriously during this period if you were doing this kind I think of work. That's, I think that's absolutely right, did, yes. Did Serling ever have any contact with the House of Ben on American activities? Anything... That was slightly before – that. I mean McCarthyism kind of hit in like 1950 and that's really yeah. when Rod Sterling's career was starting. So he kind of missed that. No, he didn't oh. He didn't have any contact with Thank that. God. Or yeah, they would yeah, have tried to brand him a subversive right, oh, right uh, off yeah. the bat yeah, just, no, just, no. just from his oh, writing. Oh, yeah, boy. Yeah. yeah. He so, would have certainly uh, fit the bill, right? So, yeah. Andy he wrote 92 episodes all by his lonesome. <laughs> yeah, 92 of 156. Incredible. Yeah. Incredible. Very impressive. <laughs> and I have to say, you know, from everything that I've heard and read, it was really a, a seamless team of writers with... Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, well, Beaumont and Matheson. And, and, Matheson, and Matheson, yeah. Yeah. When did he start bringing people aboard, Gary? I know he asked uh, Ray Bradbury for Yeah, that was pretty early on. I mean, he went to the Masters, he went to Bradbury, and that's how, you know, Matheson, Beaumont, they all kind of flowed from the uh, Ray Bradbury source. It's always been an interesting uh, little irony that Bradbury himself, uh, other than the electric grandmother, really did not contribute to the series. And yet the Twilight Zone has the flavor of Bradbury all through it. So, but he did make use of, certainly did make use of all of uh, those other wonderful writers that came from Bradbury's world. And that is what made up the Twilight Zone. Uh, Nick, talk a little bit about, I'm, I'm sorry, go ahead, Ann. No, I was just going to say, I think my dad was, well, I know that he was very humble, and he, he did not, I don't think, consider himself an expert science fiction writer. I, th- I think he, he would say that others were, were better than he was. I just wanted to add that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's in the book. He's rather humble about it, uh, you know, c- considering he wrote, you know, particularly when st- comes stories to- like The Obsolete Man, and oh, he, wrote, he wrote some good science fiction episodes. He, he sure did, yeah. Particularly, yeah, when he, when he talked about himself, really, in any way, he was always very humble, and not more than humble, he was his own harshest critic. I mean, he just he just took himself to task on, on everything he ever wrote, I think. But but when it came to science fiction, yes, he felt, he saw himself as an outsider, because he never, he wasn't publishing short stories in the, in the pulps, or, you know, in the magazines of the time. He wasn't a science fiction writer like Brad.
Bradbury. He wasn't publishing science fiction novels or anything like that. So he always saw himself as an outsider. And, and he, he always gave great deference to those guys, to Bradbury and everybody else, because he felt they were the true, quote unquote, science fiction writers. And he was just, you know, he was just a television writer who happened to be writing science fiction stuff. You, you have know? that quote, I can, I can adapt science fiction well, but I can't, I can't originate it. That's what, yeah, that was his take. And of course, I, well, I, I think, think, I think he can that. do both, yes, quite, exactly. quite frankly. Yeah. Uh, and he may have entered the Twilight Zone uh, as an outsider, but by the time it was over, his name resonated just as strongly as any oh, of the others. Believe, yes. yeah. Now, now one, th- one thought I always have when I watch, because this is one of those famous Twilight Zones, uh, where I always thought this character is being punished for no reason at all, and that was the uh, Burgess Meredith <laughs> One. Yeah, time enough at last. Uh, yeah, that is that well, is. Well, that's an adaptation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it, it yeah. is. But the but this but Serling's version of it, and certainly in Burgess Meredith's performance of it, bring out what, what Gilbert is talking about. That he's really, it's the one time in the Twilight Zone really where somebody gets a a. a punishment that they don't deserve, I, I, I think. He wanted yeah. to sit and read. That's all he wanted, yeah, that's all <laughs> yeah. he wanted, yeah, and he couldn't get it, yeah. And, and, you know, and, and the point was also made, uh, Nick, I think in your book, that uh, it, it isn't that this fellow had cut cut himself off from the rest of the human race, because he was trying to share the I, love yeah. of what he was reading with his wife and with his boss. No, no, it was the world that he inhabited that was screwed up and probably deserved to be destroyed, because it didn't appreciate art and beauty. Uh, it was just a dark irony that he kind of became one of the tragic pieces of that battered landscape when yeah. all was said and done. Yeah, that's that's the way I read it anyway. And now. an episode that you can watch over and over again, mm-hmm. it nev- and it never gets old. And where and where in where did they dig up the incredible background of the destroyed cities and the, the paintings? I mean, was that done for the Twilight Zone? Was that hanging around from another MGM movie? Uh, it was the, an amazing yeah. set. The one set that you're probably thinking of, the most famous one, where yeah, where he's standing there amidst the rubble of the um, the libraries and stuff. I believe that was an MGM set, and in fact, I think it was reused in Back to the Future. Believe it or not, where the clock tower was. <laughs> I think that's the same set um, of those those steps going up to the uh, you know the, the pillars and everything. Yeah, I believe that's the same set. But other things, I think, were probably backdrops. And yeah, you had those wonderful like backdrops with destroyed bridges and smoking buildings. And I'm going, was that from the world of flesh and the devil? which MGM put out, but it wasn't. (laughs) Yet, it was, you know, incredible work. While I nudge Gilbert awake, listen to these words from our sponsor. Were you speaking? It's Gilbert and Frank's Amazing Colossal Podcast. And now we return to the show. Another character who was punished unfairly, and this wasn't one of the better Twilight Zones. This was one of, but it had one of my favorite character actors, John MacGyver. And that was the one, I think, Sounds and Silence. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, well, I don't know if necessarily he was uh, punished unfairly. I'm, well, I'm not sure. He becomes mean, but then he gives a whole speech in the middle of it talking about how his parents forced that on him. Yeah, right, right. And then you go, well, wait a second. There's an explanation. <laughs> it's true. not just that. Uh, you want to you treat Ann and Nick and Gary to a little bit of your uh, your John yes. MacGyver since you brought it up? <laughs> oh, oh uh, well, this is from Sounds and Silence. 
And I was a child. Everything we had to be quiet. Everything we had to whisper. We couldn't speak at a normal tone of voice. We whispered. We weren't allowed to eat cookies. We could only eat fudge because cookies were too noisy. What do you think, Ann? I think that's quite good. That was masterful. <laughs> masterful. Oh, that's great. Chillingly so great. What, what did you say, Ann? I said chillingly good. Yeah, he's the only John MacGyver impersonator still working. <laughs> <laughs> they used to be a bunch. It's a cottage industry. Let, let's talk about the fateful night. Let's talk about the birth of the show in October of, of 1959. By the way, I found one other quote here, too. Again, talking about belittling sci-fi as a, as a, as a genre. He said his transition from live drama was was the equivalent it was viewed as the equivalent of a Musial, Stan Musial leaving the St. Louis Cardinals to coach a little league game. <laughs> yeah, that's what he said, right? Yeah. 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 Um, let's talk about uh, Desi Arnaz's of all people <laughs> involvement and in the in the birth of the Twilight Zone. Right. And, and these are things I, of course, didn't know back then. But, uh, yeah, Desi Arnaz was the first, uh, narr- or uh, what, what do you call it, spokesperson, the eventually. Host. The host, thank you, yeah. So And that didn't work out so well, right. But, but, um, oh, the time Ad- element. Right, right. But I actually met Lucy Arnaz, and, and she didn't know her dad's connection to that either. So I thought that was interesting. Isn't that cool? So that is yeah. the, that is the true unofficial. Is that the true uh, Twilight Zone pilot? The time element. There's some debate about that. That's okay. why we call it the unofficial pilot. Okay, <laughs> so unofficial pilot, and, and it runs an hour too. It's not yes. even a half hour. Right. right. De- uh, Desi Arnaz was the host. Well, here's the here's how it went. It was the Desilu Playhouse. Yep. Yeah. And Desi Arnaz was the host of Desilu Playhouse, and they aired an episode called The Time Element that was written by Rod Sterling, and he was submitted to CBS as Twilight Zone, the Time Element. And Rod Sterling submitted it as the pilot, but CBS rejected it as a pilot. They thought it was too ambiguous, it was too much fantasy, and it was too far out, and they, they didn't want to do it as a pilot for a series. But the producer of Desilu Playhouse and Desi Arnaz liked it and liked Sterling, and they wanted to produce it, so it ended up on that show. And so it is seen now as the unofficial pilot because it was, you know, it was intended to be the pilot of the Twilight Zone, but it just didn't quite make it to the Twilight Zone and end up on Desilu Playhouse. But, um, so, and, and Desi Arnaz hosted it, yeah, so. And then there's it's another quite, pilot. It's quite good, too, it's quite good. ever see it. Oh, uh, yes, it is, yes. What about yeah. The Happy Place? That became the second pilot? Yes, that was the, yeah, and that was never produced. That was a, a one-hour uh, a script that he, that and was rejected CBS outright. found it too depressing? Yes, yeah, it was, um, yeah, it was, it was set in a dystopian future where, um, the elderly and the sick are are euthanized, and um, it's about uh, a guy who works at this basically concentration camp. Almost, well, it's, well, it's it's more of a, a hotel. It's a happy place, you know, where people go. They think they're going to be happy, and they get euthanized, you know. And their um, his son is uh, is is being indoctrinated to this idea of the, that these people are supposed to be, you know, put down this way. And it, it was a very dark script, yeah. And it, it would not have been a good pilot. Okay, so now it's yeah. his third attempt. And they eventually, you know, third time's the charm because what they wound up with was the ideal pilot for a whole bunch of reasons, which I'm sure Nick can amplify on. I mean, not only was it a good little story, but it, it, you know, the fact that it wasn't totally supernatural, if you will, made it safe. 
Yeah, it was, and and by this by this point, the Twilight Zone was dropped from an hour to a half an hour. I mean, Rod Sterling originally wanted it to be an hour show, and that's why uh, the time element was an hour, and the Happy Place originally was an hour long script, and then they dropped to a half hour, and he submitted Where Is Everybody, starring Earl Holloman, and and it really was, as Gary said, it was a perfect. Uh, pilot because it, it really, really was it was accessible enough for the mainstream audience to grasp onto um it was a, essentially a one-man show so you just identify with this one person through the whole episode and um the ending is one of the few endings in the twilight zone that could happen it's it's a, it's essentially a rational ending even though it's a twist um so it really was the perfect pilot yeah there was nothing really supernatural or fantastic going on this was just going on the, in his mind, in right. his mind. It was in isolation right well, and yet right. it taps into everything that we love about the twilight zone in the sense that here's an average guy that you can relate to who suddenly finds himself he takes the wrong turn and he the whole world is upside down what happened which became so much of what twilight zone yep, was it. about we could relate to the main characters and we've already mentioned robert redford but a lot of big stars well like charles bronson oh so many is in one um Oh, God, so many. Robert uh, Duvall. Yes, yes, yes. yes, yes. Robert Duvall is another good example. Uh, Carol Burnett. Um, yes. You know, Anne Francis. And a lot, of them, a lot of them were not even stars when they started. You know, Robert Redford was a few years away from becoming a star, but they, you know, television during this period made use of a lot of wonderful actors who did go on to become big stars. Yes. Yeah. And, one of, and one of the best, I think, Jack Klugman. Oh, and Klugman. Oh, and yes. Art Carney. Uh, oh, oh, yeah, the, he was in yeah. two. Yeah, Klugman was in four. He's in four. Four. Yeah, yeah. yeah. four. Yeah. Wow. Game of pool. Yeah, that and, one I know. And praise of Pip. Those two I know. Uh, which ones am I, am I blanking on? <laughs> he was in one on? of Death the hour-long episodes. One of the hour episodes. episodes. Yes, he's one of the yeah. hours, right. And yeah. uh, and uh, Passage for Trumpet. Oh, oh I watched Passage that, for yes, Trumpet. Yes, I yes, yes. Yeah. Okay. Klugman, Klugman yeah. I think, did more uh, Twilight Zones than any other actor, even more than Burgess well, Meredith. Ma- Meredith and Klugman yeah. both did four, actually. They both starred in four. They both, so they're yeah. both tied at yep. four. As far as starring roles go, yeah. And I want to give this a little personal and historical context. Now, you were not watching these shows, obviously, you were a child. Right, right. I was I was four when the Twilight Zone premiered. I'm an old lady now. <laughs> but I, I really, I, knew, I always knew that my dad was a writer, but I didn't know specifically what he was writing. And actually, I wrote about this in the book, that I didn't know that he wrote the Twilight Zone until this mean kid on the playground asked me when I was probably seven, are you something out of the Twilight Zone? <laughs> <laughs> wow. And I didn't right? up completely offended at that point. <laughs> so, so, what was the first one you sat down and watched with your dad? Was it Nightmare at 20,000 Feet? Yes, it was. And um, it was of no consolation that my dad hadn't written that one. It was Matheson. I was still absolutely terrified. You know, and, and I think like anybody, you're, you're kind of always looking out that airplane window just anticipating that little gremlin. Oh, I got to say something. Uh, uh, I was, I guess, six years old in 1959 when the series started, so I was the perfect age. My parents were a little eccentric themselves, so they let me stay up to like 10 o'clock. What was it, Friday nights at 10 o'clock? Okay. Most kids weren't allowed to stay up that late, but uh, for the Twilight Zone, they let me do it. And I got to say, I mean, I just got so caught up in everything we're talking about here. I mean, uh, uh, once that show pulls you in, you were hooked forever. Uh, and, and then the reruns came out in syndication. You were watching forever. Nightmare on 20,000. I just want to say this one thing. 
that is so well-directed, uh, well directed. I, I actually spoke to Richard Donner, the director on it, who went on to do The Omen and all these other great films. And uh, he still considers that to be one of his greatest achievements. The way he directed, yeah. that was with William Shatner, you know. Sure. William Shatner is about to pull that curtain, and you'll have a close-up through the window of the face coming right out. You've never seen the face yet. You've just seen it in the distance. The way the way he directed that, where Chatner just holds back, pulling the curtain, holds back, finally then just pulls it, and that face is right there. You could hear the screams in the whole neighborhood. <laughs> well, you gave me, me tell you. you gave me a segue, <laughs> and because we talked at the very beginning about your dad's sense of humor, this is a, <clears throat> tell tell us about the practical joke. That okay, he, I just I just want to revisit one thing that that was just said about being so young watching the Twilight Zones. It's it's really been amazing to me, the people that I hear from that, that watch the Twilight Zones as kids, and, and they've written me very personal things about how they had tumultuous childhoods or abusive childhoods, mm. and how they thought of my, my dad as their father, and mm. what an important role he was, and, and this is from kids and people who decide to go into writing because of my dad, so it's it's been um, some really poignant things that I've heard from people. But but to your question, yes, my father was a practical joker and anything for a laugh. I, he would often disappear and, and then reappear wearing my lampshade or costumes <laughs> or just, just he, was, he was a very silly, fun guy. And, you know, where most kids don't want to be hanging out with their parents, I, I loved being with my dad. There, there's a quote by... Um, uh, Roger, I, I think his first name is Roger Rosenblatt. He wrote a book called, uh, I think it was called Making Toast or Toast, and he wrote a graduation speech for his daughter, and he said that I wished her moments of helpless hilarity. And that, that really had an impression on me because that's so much of my relationship with my dad. It was helpless hilarity. There's some good stories in the book like that, too, and, and, and you see his sentimental side. Not only you guys watching the Flintstones together and what, he paid you to tickle his feet. <laughs> <laughs> do I have that right? No, you do. Now, one thing that was very popular with Serling, and it's in two of my favorite episodes, uh, um, Walking Distance and, and uh, oh, what's the other one? Uh, Willoughby. Is the 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 idea of a desperate to escape the rat race and be in a more simpler time? That seemed like a very popular Serling idea. Well, he he told the writing class that he had a propensity to write about the past, and I and that was quite clear to me. Um, you know, as I got older, that my dad really, uh, I, and I think his best scripts were those two that you mentioned, and a night gallery, they're tearing down Tim Riley's bar. Mm -hmm. You know, another thing that happened when my dad was in the war is his father died of a heart attack when he was 52. And even though the war was over, my dad was not allowed to go home because he didn't at that point have enough points. And this was another trauma that he experienced that, you know, he couldn't be there for, my, for his father's funeral. And I think there was certainly unresolved grief. Um, and so in walking distance, you know, there's that opportunity to go back and to have his father say the things that I'm sure my dad wished that his dad could say to him, you know, that stop looking behind you, look ahead. Martin, 
Is it so bad where you're from? I thought so, Pop. I've been living at a dead run and I was tired. And one day I knew I had to come back here. I had to come back and get on a merry-go-round and eat cotton candy and listen to a band concert. I had to stop and breathe and close my eyes and smell and listen. I guess we all want that. Maybe when you go back, Martin, you'll find that there are merry-go-rounds and band concerts where you are. Maybe you haven't been looking in the right place. You've been looking behind you, Martin. Try looking ahead. Maybe. Goodbye, son. Goodbye, Pop. That's wonderful. Mm. So he actually got closure through his art, you know, Absolutely. by writing this. He was able actually to have that closure with his father. And there's that sense. terrific actor in it, Frank Overton, mm. who plays uh, Gig Young's father, who is just great actor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's why yeah, it's it was on a his... beautiful script and beautifully acted. I think it's so full of those actors. You know, really, really uh, those. Those great character actors who gave these terrific performances, really. And in in um, in um, uh, Walking Distance, isn't he? Isn't that uh, sort of taken right out of your dad's life? Didn't he go back? I forgot the name Absolutely. of the 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 the, the park. He, he'd walk through the through the through the streets, and there was a there was a, a recreation park with a bandstand and a carousel. It was absolutely his his imagined journey backwards. Um, my, you know, every summer my dad would go back to Binghamton and, and drive by Recreation Park and, and see the carousel and, um, and, and drive by his house. And, and this definitely was uh, autobiographical. And by the and way, that carousel, uh, yeah. that carousel is still there. That's, about, believe, that's exactly right. what I was going to say. Huh. Yes, and still, I, yes. I watched it recently, and they, they're so sloppy with editing there's a whole ending that is so nice. Oh, you mean you mean the local television station that ran it? Yes. Yeah, they 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 they, they cut him up. Because the ending is he goes back to the this soda shop, and now the price of uh, chocolate uh, soda is much more. And and when he get, tries to get up off the stool, he goes, "I guess these stools weren't made for a bum leg." And the guy says. Get that in the war. How it goes? Oh, he tells him that he hurt himself on the merry-go-round, and he says, "Oh, they tore that down." And he goes, "A little late for you." And he goes, "Yeah, late for me." That whole yeah. section they cut oh, out. That's horrible. Oh, and it's God. such <laughs> a powerful oh, yeah. moment. Terrible. Yeah. It's a poignant. It's a poignant piece of television. And Gig Young is amazing. Yeah. And it's also, a, we, we should mention a spectacular score by Bernard Herrmann. I was going to say one that. Of, yeah. One of the many great composers who worked on the series. And that particular episode may be Bernard Herrmann's most impressive yeah. work. And, and, and Serling himself loved that score. In fact, to the point where he wrote to Bernard Herrmann and told him how much he loved that score and wanted to know if he could get a recording of it. And Bernard Herrmann wrote back to him and said how rare it was for a writer to write to a composer and, and compliment his work. It was just like unheard of. And he said, of course, you know, I'll find you. I'll find you a recording of it. 
if I can, you know. And so. and one, uh, well, going back to in praise of Pip, um, we had uh, one of the oh, we, actors. We had Billy Moomy. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I wanted to say, and I said to the boys before you came on the line, we've had seven people on this podcast who were associated with the original show, which we're proud to say. That's wonderful. Including Richard Donner, who Gary just praised, but also go. Billy Moomy uh, from those three, from Good Life, Long Distance Call, and Pip, George Takei, uh, Barbara, right. Barbara Barry, uh, Julie Newmar, John Aston, uh, Joyce Van Patten from one of the hour longs, and Orson <laughs> Bean was here. Oh, really? From oh, Mr. Beavis. Oh, oh. Mr. oh Beavis. that's right. <laughs> that's right. And I always forget who's the. There was an actor in it with him. William Shallert was the cop. We almost oh, okay. had him. Oh, yeah. yeah. That would have been oh, great. Oh, that would have been great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He passed away. And Carol Burnett. Carol Burnett, too. Of course. Now, I I have, I have, seem to have a memory that the Carol Burnett one, they put a laugh track into. Originally, That's there correct. was, yes. Yeah. And now that it's been subtracted, I believe, it's no longer in the versions that you will see. But uh, originally, there was. And as a child watching it when it was free, I... I, I it totally confused me because oh. I knew that laugh tracks were on situation comedies and things. They weren't on the Twilight Zone. <laughs> so years later, we found out, of course, that was a pilot for another series, which would have been a comedy series. So the laugh track would have been appropriate. But there it was on oh, the Twilight Zone, it, confusing a lot of people. It was so weird on the Twilight Zone. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I love in Walking Distance is his nod to Ray Bradbury. Yeah, with, one of the streets is also Mickey Rooney, because that was on the old MGM lot. Yep. And since Mickey Rooney's Andy Hardy house was there, that was another little connection in joke. Yeah. It's, it, 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 Nick, I read, I think it was in your book, that, that and you said he was his own harshest critic. Was he sharply critical of his storytelling in that particular episode? Yes, in that particular episode, believe it or not. He, believe uh, it or he, not. He came to, he loved it when it was first when it first aired. I, I think I point out in the book, he, he wrote very glowing things about that episode when it first aired. But as time went by, he became dissatisfied with it, primarily because of some structural issues. He thought that when the gig young character, Martin Sloan, meets his parents, it happens too early in the episode, and it wasn't as emotional as it should have been. Um, he felt, after watching it so many times, that he should have saved that to, for closer to the end when it could have made a bigger emotional impact. Whereas he says, you know, Gig Young goes back and he sees his parents, and it's, you know, he should be devastated or he should be, he should be really, really uh, affected by seeing his parents again for the first time in, in so many years. And he's kind of not. And that bothered him. But I, I think that I think he's again was being overly critical. I think it's a it's a beautiful uh, it, was, it was also his his students who were pains in the necks exactly. and would always be criticizing all of and they kind of turned his head on that. I remember reading about that thinking, no, 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 this is a beautiful episode. And mm -hmm. some of the other points that the the, the students were making I just disagreed with yeah. the, the little old fella behind the counter who isn't reacting strangely to yes. Gig Young's odd guy. I always figured that's because people from this era were just gentler and nicer and didn't want to embarrass you. Yes. And that also just played perfectly to show the difference in the two different time periods. So, right. uh, you know, and, work and what for Gary, me, What folks. Gary's referring to is, is Rod Sterling taught, uh, he taught at several different places, but he taught at a, a school in California right, you know, shortly before his death in 1975. Um, 
the I forget the name of the school, but um, but a lot of those lectures have been included as commentary tracks on Twilight Zone episodes. So you hear what the what the students are saying about these episodes, and Rod Serling was very sensitive to uh, allowing them to criticize his work. So he would let them take these shots at him, and invariably Rod Serling would kind of take their side. Yeah, you're right. You know, I should have did this. I should have done that. And sometimes I think he was being a little overly uh, mm-hmm. you know critical, harsh, and, on, harsh and, on himself. He did say that he felt he learned more from them than than uh, they were learning from him. Wow. Interesting. Interesting. And and jumping ahead a few years, he didn't want to do Night Gallery, I heard. Well, I, he did initially, but then when he realized it was going to be a completely different animal and he was not going to have the creative control that he had with Twilight Zone and the uh, Jack Laird, you know, wanted all this horror and that was not what my dad envisioned at all. Again, he wanted to tell meaningful stories that 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 gave a message, and uh, he was he was disappointed. But you know that said again, that episode they're tearing down Tim Riley's bar and others were, were really beautiful scripts. Yes, that's a beautiful one. Well, said, yeah, yeah well the, said. the best of the night galleries, and and you know usually just you know because they let Serling do his thing, and they were just wonderful episodes. We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast. After this, did he do Messiah on Mott Street? That's my particular favorite. And yes. Oh, the Edward that, G. Robinson. That, that's, yeah, that's yeah, it's a great gallery. one. Yes, I love yeah. that one. Yeah, yeah, that was another great one. And yeah, there were there were good, really good night galleries. I mean, I know the show sort of has a reputation of just being a bad Twilight Zone, but there were excellent episodes Absolutely. of that show. Um, you know, some of his best work, I think. I, I like the Vincent Price one. I, yeah, I, I, me too. Yeah, class of '99. Great. Oh, and then the L- L- Lawrence Harvey, the Caterpillar, another also great. I mean, there's some one. wonderful yeah. ones. Uh, you you said is there's something in the book? You said his sentimental streak was almost as as intense as his crusading moralistic one. And I watched Night of the Meek last night, and it's really a beautiful piece of work. Right. It's it's actually Mark Dewitziak who who recently said that, um, like Mark Twain, my father was a moralist in disguise. Mm-hmm. That's fair to say. I, I, and and another one of my favorites, um, uh, for oh, uh, one for the angels, also with, very sentimental. Yeah, yeah. Edwin and Murray Hamilton, which was like the second episode broadcast, I believe. It was very yes. early. On. Yes, it was. Yeah. yeah, and Gary, you did a commentary on that one. You did an audio commentary on on the Blu-rays. Yeah, yeah, uh, and and again. Think of it from the point of view, you're watching the show for the first time, you're a kid, you see the first episode, you know, with Earl Holliman, where is everybody? It's like, you know, my God, wow, what is this? And now all of a sudden, the second week, you know, you've got Ed Wynn dealing with Mr. Death in this whimsical, poignant, you know, sweet little story. Wow, it just shows you the range of these stories and where, where the series can take you. And one, the first week we were spellbound. The second week we were charmed. Yeah. You know, and right away it was like, this is going to be one heck of an... And I think it was, the third one was Mr. Denton on Doomsday, I think, yeah, which I think is a so. Western. Yes. You know, and, and right away the show is telling you, we're going to take you everywhere in any time period, any situation, and you're going to find humanity and you're going to find fantasy and something's going to hook you. And look at the versatility, his versatility as a writer. And and even though it's a sweet, cute story, there's also a little girl who gets hit by a car and is in a coma throughout yes. that episode. 
Yeah, well, that was you had, yeah, that was the that was the stakes, the stakes that that uh, Edwin the Edwin character had to deal with. That he's going to try to save this little girl. And yeah. look, I, at, look, I, at Mr., yeah. look at Mr. Look at Mister Death in that episode, played yeah. by Murray Hamilton. Yeah. Yeah. Terrific, yeah. Yeah. And what an interesting characterization of Death because he's not a bad guy. Yeah. He's doing his job. He's even kind of sympathetic to Edwin here and there. So, so yeah. what a marvelous way of showing, right? Introducing Death. As not necessarily being a scary thing, but being just a guy. Eventually, Robert Redford would play Death in the series, even more likable and warm. Yeah, and this, and death, so this death is more yeah. of a bureaucrat. And, <laughs> and yeah. for uh, people out there who don't remember Murray Hamilton, just remember, you say barracuda, and people say, what? Huh? But you yelled shark, and we've got a panic on our hands. <laughs> His most famous role as the mayor in Jaws, absolutely. So, so, Anne, with these episodes, and we'll talk about Willoughby in a minute. You're oh, s- wait, wait. Go ahead. My favorite line from <laughs> one for the angels. Go ahead. Uh, he says, if there's some accomplishment... Uh, I could hold off your death if there's some major thing you have to achieve. And Edwin says, well, I never rode in a helicopter. (laughs) (laughs) They have a nice byplay. I mean, the the writing is wonderful. But, you know, again, the casting of this show. Yeah, yeah. I mean, within an inch of its life, every single... Part is just especially in that first season, Gary. Oh yeah, it was one one episode after another, and you were just going, "Whoa!" Because we had never experienced. I mean, there had been other TV anthologies. There were other spooky anthologies, "Lights Out" and "Tales from Tomorrow" and all that, but there was nothing like the mm-hmm. Twilight Zone. It, it seemed to grab people of all ages. Uh, you know what? What an experience to have lived through when it first came on. Oh, and there's there was say. that one with Buster Keaton. Oh, yeah, yeah, that sure. was like a silent episode yeah. almost for a while, right? And, and, you, and, and another great actor, and I always forget his name, and me and Frank were looking up his name. The, that fat guy who's with uh, Buster Keaton. Stanley Adams? Oh, Stanley oh, Adams. Oh, yeah. Yes. 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 Another right. fine actor. And he was in Requiem for Heavyweight. Yes, and yeah. the yep. Batman series, actually. Yeah. So, and you're seeing your dad's sentimental side. We're just, you were talking about this, the sentimental streak. I mean, I'm partial to, to the sentimental episodes, the one Gilbert's talking about, uh, Willoughby walking distance, uh, obviously the Christmas episode. I mean, were those among his favorites, do you know? Oh, I, I, would, I, I would say definitely. But as was... Um the the Nazi Germany one. Um, oh, Death's Head. Death, Death Head revisited. He was, you know, quite passionate about that one as well. But certainly, you know, as I said, he had he said that he had a propensity to deal with the past. So I think these ones where he's going back in time and and having the capacity to 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 be to write this and and found, you know, they were cathartic for him that that he was uh, that those were his favorites. You know, and, and part of, I think, why The Twilight Zone was so good is because my dad owned Cayuga Productions. This was his baby. He had complete control. And, you know, when we were talking about Night Gallery, he didn't have the creative control then. So, and, and again, a seamless team of writers that they all got along. And um, so I think that was a, a huge part of it, too. A, a writer's show. Well, yeah, obviously, obviously it's, 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 a, it's a lovely thing to see someone who creates the show maintain the vision of the show throughout. But uh, Gary, sp- speak a little bit about those writers, about Beaumont, about Matheson. 
Oh well, well, these guys were George you Johnson. know brilliant guys. They they all uh, had a you know careers doing short stories. You know the the written word is really where they gotten started. You know on the page, uh, and they transitioned into doing things like the Twilight Zone and then uh, you know movies that uh, were on themes like this. Madison and Beaumont wrote. One hell of a great uh, horror film called Burn Which Burn, which is also known as Night of the Eagle, which is an incredible dark black and white supernatural story. Matheson went on to write all of the great um, Roger Corman, Edgar Allan Poe movies. Uh, so these guys, you know, I mean, not only that, I mean, Matheson became <laughs> the Night Stalker sure. and, you know, all of this great work that he did. So, you know, they, they had tremendous careers, uh, and it always kind of harks back to the Twilight Zone, in a sense, because the Twilight Zone kind of inspired so much of what their later careers were about. Of course, Charles Beaumont died relatively young, uh, you know, so Very young. unlike Madison, who went on to produce great works. Um, but yeah, no, they were all, and George Clayton Johnson, I mean, they were all wonderful, wonderful writers. I mean, it was, I mean, when you think of the Twilight Zone, it's mostly Serling you think about, but... Madison, Beaumont, those guys also were key players. Absolutely. Yeah, they wrote uh, plenty of great uh, you know, classic episodes. And the amazing thing about Matheson and Beaumont, to me anyway, is, is how they balanced Serling. They, they really wrote different, mm -hmm. sty mm -hmm. different themes, different styles than Serling did, much darker stuff than Serling wrote uh, primarily anyway. And they just, they just perfectly complemented each other. I mean, they weren't going to really write a sentimental story like One for the Angels um, or really a, um, a message-laden story story like Monsters mm -hmm. Do on Maple mm -hmm. Street. Um, yeah. As Matheson would say, we, they, we just wrote stories. You know, we just wrote story stuff. That's, that's all we wrote. We weren't going to make a statement. But it was so perfect to balance the Serling stuff with those, with those stories. And they wrote, you know, The Howling Man and Shadow Play and, you know, and we Perchance go, to Dream. Yeah. And, all and great. Just, oh, and it was, it was lightning in a bottle because yeah. who, who knew that was going to happen, that they would all complement uh, each yeah, other so and Serling perfectly. Didn't know. Yeah, Serling didn't know. I mean, he just he either got lucky or he sensed something in these guys <laughs> that he knew that they would just would work well on the show, and, and they did. And one episode that had, of old people, Alan Seuss from <laughs> laughing. Some strange people would the, turn That up. was the mask. Yeah. 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 Yes, which was oh, a very yeah. creepy one. And, oh, yeah. yeah. And and that was in the final season, too. Yes. That was one of the last sure. great ones that they did. I want to ask Anne about you and your, you and your sister visiting the set, Anne, as children. Right. I, I just want to say another really touching, touching episode that that was like my dad's writing was George Clayton Johnson's "Kick the Can," which I thought was mm -hmm. just just a really lovely, lovely script. In fact, when they when I got married and they had done the '83 movie, we won't go there, but uh, I, I loved the soundtrack to that, and and we played the uh, music from "Kick the Can" at our wedding. But anyway, oh, that's great! Oh, wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, my sister and I, my dad took my sister um, and I to the set and we had, we were clueless where we were and, and all I remember was a set of stairs that went nowhere and holding my dad's hand and uh, yeah, but you know, I, I, again, I, I really wasn't tuned in to, well, this is where, you know, dad, all his writing occurs and, or, you know, that's the end product, but uh Oh, it's a good thing you weren't there on one of the days where uh, William Tuttle's monsters were running around. You know, you could have scared the heck right. out of you, right? Or if you had been been there for Night of the Behold, uh, Eye of the Beholder, you would have been in trouble. Right. Or to serve man. <laughs> or to serve man, right? <laughs> 
or talking or, or, or living doll. And and, and you, your, your dad passed when you were only 20. Right. I just turned 20 about two weeks before. So, yeah, it was, um, and, and, you know, we knew that this open heart surgery was, was you know, it, it was so new back then. Today, you know, if I, he would have survived, but back then it was mm. a brand new surgery. But, but, you know, we were all very optimistic that he was going to pull through and he, he wanted to do a Broadway show and he was very much looking forward to uh, future works and grandchildren and the whole bit. So certain biographers that write about how dark my dad was and depressed, it's not true. You know, he was very optimistic. And that's part why I wrote my book, to to set the record straight about who he was. And and it was with Serling, though, I don't think I ever saw a clip of him or anything where he didn't have a cigarette in his hand. Yeah, well, you know, like his dad, he was he was a terrible smoker, and he tried to quit numerous times. In fact, I wrote it this in my book when he was taken to Strong Memorial Hospital by ambulance from the hospital here, and he he was so addicted that he convinced the ambulance drivers to pull over so that he could get out and have a cigarette. And at one point, they were all standing outside the ambulance having a cigarette. Oh my goodness! Uh, yeah. <laughs> Wow. You know, we, my sister and I would throw his cigarettes in the fireplace, and, mm. and he, he did try to quit. And when, you know, it was after he died, I found packs of cigarettes hidden away behind his file drawer and just anywhere he could, he could hide them. I think today, though, he would have quit. I think, you know, with all the pressure, he, because he was also very active. You know, he, was a, he loved to play paddle tennis, and he... Um, so, oh, back, yeah. back in the day, everybody smoked. It was almost exactly. like automatic, you know, and, and, you know, slowly people began to realize, whoa, this is really dangerous. I mean, so he got addicted to it and at an early age, like so many people did. You know? Well, one, one of the fascinating things about your book, Anne, is that because you lost him at such a young age, that, that your book is, is in part about piecing together his life, you you going, you finding the photos, you finding the letters, you basically filling in the past. It's really rather touching. Well, thank you, thank you. You know, it, it was interesting because, and a huge part of this book was coming to terms with my grief uh, about losing my dad. And I gave an early reading at the Paley Center before the book was published, and a woman came up to me and she said that. Um, after hearing me read, she knew that she'd be all right. Her dad had a terminal illness. And I was so touched that, you know, my book had, something I had written had this impact on her, and I couldn't even speak to her. I, all I could do was hug her. But I've heard from a lot of people, you know, everybody deals with grief and um, how, how they related to that aspect of it. Because I think people are hesitant, and, and I was certainly hesitant. You know, how, how open do I want to be? But I was so devastated when my dad died. I, I, you know, felt like I couldn't breathe. I couldn't move on without him. So, and and I, I know I'm not unique to that. People mm-hmm. feel that. It's beautiful to read about, which is, a, a, again, why I want to recommend your book. I mean, not only to Twilight Zone fans, but, yes, for, for anybody that's going through that, experience um it's 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 beautiful to watch you you piece uh, you know his history together through 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 the letters and the photos and and watching and reading his work finding the scripts and watching the twilight zone and watching and going back and 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 uh, get, gaining a greater understanding of the man through his work yeah well thank you very it, much it's beautiful um thank you 
Yeah, I want to ask everybody about. Uh, oh, I have just a question for Nick. How did he come to be the narrator in the first place? Because I know Orson Welles was. Well, that's actually considered. Well, yes, but that actually is a bit of a myth that I think I, I hope hopefully I, I um, busted in, in in the book. It's is a that, myth. Uh, yeah. Well, I'll tell you, it's it's kind of half true. Well, what how it worked was, I mean, Rod Serling wanted to be the narrator. I mean, he he always did. Uh, he, Rod Serling, as Anne will attest to, he was a bit of a ham, and he he did like to be on camera. He 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 did, no matter how much he protested and everything, he did like to be on camera. <laughs> and and um, so in the first season, uh, he was an off-screen narrator. He was he was wasn't seen on screen during the first season. It was just, you know, it was just the off-screen narration and closing. Um, and it wasn't until after the first season that CBS then said, hey, you know, if we have an on-screen narrator, maybe it'll, you know, give us a little excitement, boost the ratings a little bit. Why don't we go see if Orson Welles is interested? So it wasn't until after the first season, actually, they said maybe Orson Welles could be a, an on-screen narrator. And and Rod Sterling was actually uh, booked to uh, go fly to London and meet with Orson Welles to discuss being the narrator. And I'm not sure if he ever followed through with that, because I think what happened happened is that they eventually realized, you know, we're probably going to have to pay Orson Welles, I think. You know, he might want some money for this game. <laughs> I think that would definitely be a good guess. Yeah. And, uh, and they were trying to cut the budget. They were constantly trying to cut the budget. So I think what and, and ended up happening was Rod Sterling said, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do it. And, and they said, all right, you know what, let's, let's let, let Rod do it. And and he did it. And, well, he was, and it was, you well, know, obviously. We can't imagine he, he can't, it any yeah, other way. Exactly. Well, well was, you know, was, yeah, yeah, it, it, so. it's so interesting because his voice already in season one kind of dominated. You already kind of knew. Yeah, so how and could you also, replace and that? Correct me if I'm wrong, but my memory is even in season one, it was always, and now Mr. Serling, and he would introduce the trailer for next yes. Yes. So, yeah, he, so he was on camera. So he was on sense, camera, yeah. yes, after the episode was over. But, but right. that was just during the first run. So I, when I was watching the show, obviously, in the late 70s, early 80s, I never saw it. Never saw in those, syndication, so right. Yeah, syndication, they never had that. Saw those, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I just thought there were two episodes, at least, with the actor George Grizzard. Oh, um, one of them had to do with the love potion. Yes, there are the two episodes. There's the half-hour love potion one, and then there's the hour episode in his image. Which oh, yes, right, right, where right, he right. built yes. a robot yes. right. of himself. And that one I like. Very yeah. creepy. Yeah. The Chaser was the name of the other one Yes, uh, with the love potion. Uh, George Grizzard usually played neurotic characters, you know, and he was good in both of those parts, I thought. And who were your dad's favorite actors in, in, in interpreting his work? You said in your book Klugman was one of them. Yeah, definitely Klugman. Um, you know, and I, and I don't remember, these are, this is one of many conversations I wish that I could have with him, but um, from what I understand, you know, after writing the book, Klugman, certainly Redford, um, I, you know, I think so many of them did uh, such a superb job that my dad was quite pleased. Art Connie, for sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I remember when Billy Mummy was on, he talked about how Klugman, you know, Mummy's parents were there, and Klugman went over to the parents and said, when your son shows up in the scene, I'm going to grab him and I'm going to start kissing him and squeezing him. And that's a great story. That that really is a, a beautiful story, actually. Yeah, that Billy Mooney says, and he says his parents never got over that. Like how what a gentleman this guy was to go basically warn his parents that he was going to grab him and kiss him and hug him, and so they wanted to make sure they were comfortable yeah. with that. You yeah, know? it's amazing. Did you meet and him? What a, and what a and what a gentleman Bill Mummy is too. You know, he's for, a lovely for guy. We love Bill. Were you, were you, he's just a genuine nice guy. He's a sweetheart. You 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 must have been present in '88 when Klugman and Burgess Meredith were present for the the dedication of of your dad's star on the Walk of Fame. And 
unfortunately, I was not there then. I, I wish I could. I, I wish I had been, but we were, you know, back east. So, oh, that's unfortunate. Yeah. Oh, it absolutely is. You know, you're talking about uh, um, Jack Klugman, and uh, I believe uh, Jack Klugman had originally uh, been cast as Santa Claus in Night of the Meek, and Art Carney was the second choice. And I think initially, uh, Rod wasn't that crazy about Art Carney, really, really wanted Klugman, and then ultimately realized that Carney was brilliant in his oh, own so right. Good in it. I mean, gl- granted, Klugman could have played that part beautifully too. I mean, let's face it, they were both wonderful actors. So, so we're talking about your dad's sense of humor, and, and yeah, obviously you have to speculate again, but one can't help imagine what he would have thought of what, what the show has become in pop culture, how it's endured for decades. I mean, I think about Dan Aykroyd spoofing your dad on Saturday Night Live. Oh, yes. Uh, Harry Shearer, I think, in later seasons. Uh, how many times he's been sent up? Uh, uh, semi-regular characters on The Simpsons. Those two um, Martians. Oh, Kodos and Kang. <laughs> yes. Kod- Kang and Kodos. I- and in one of the Naked Gun movies, the guy, the actor from that particular episode, runs across the screen and yells... Uh, to serve man, it's a cookbook. Oh, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, who is that? Who is that? To serve man. Yeah. Who is that actor, Gary? You know the actor. Oh, uh, from uh, is it Fritz Weaver? No, 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 no. Lloyd Bachner. Lloyd Bachner. Oh, yes. Lloyd Bachner. Yes. Would he? Would he have? Would he have been tickled by it, Anne? Do you think? Oh, I, I think beyond so beyond tickled. He he would have been stunned that, you know, that it survived all these years. But, you know, again, my dad dealt with human issues. And um, I, I just wrote this to somebody today that, you know, times change, but people don't change. And we're still dealing with these things. My dad was so passionate and vocal about, you know, like prejudice and um, mob mentality. And, and I, I mean, look at our current administration. It's of course. so divisive and um, so, so, again, that's, that's a, I think, a huge piece of why it has survived all this time. But, yeah, my dad would just be um, saddened in some ways, you know, because we are still dealing with all this shit, but um, just just honored that he's remembered after all these decades because he didn't think he would be. That's incredible. Yeah, he's he's immortal, and the Twilight Zone is immortal. It'll, it'll never go away. I mean, the name resonates, just that the title itself... You know, means so much in our culture. Sadly, watching the monsters are due on Maple Street, and I are the beholder this weekend. And you're struck by how timely they still are. Sad. Oh yeah. Sad to yeah. say. And uh, yeah. as Anne points out, in the with the current administration, timelier than ever. I, I know it's it's indelicate to talk about, but uh, boy, yeah. I mean, he was a visionary too. Oh no. Oh doubt. yeah. No doubt. Oh yeah. Without question. So I'm going to ask the panel. Uh, no, 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 this is hard. <laughs> this is like picking a favorite <laughs> child, I would imagine, certainly for Anne. But, and, and you too, Gilbert. But we'll start with Gary. Fa- a favorite episode, and then what you consider to be a, f- a favorite underrated or under- underappreciated episode. Oh, wow. You're really uh, coming at us on this one. Okay. Um, all righty. Uh, my favorite episode, I, to me, the ultimate, the ultimate Twilight Zone episode to me is Eye of the Beholder. Uh, it has everything. It has an incredible twist. Uh, it has amazing Bill Tuttle makeup. It has an incredible Bernard Herman score. And uh, it, it, it just nailed it. And when I first saw that as a kid, it was like, oh, my God. Incredible. I, uh, mm. it, it, and again, you know, you could keep going because... Uh, 
if you want, what is your favorite sentimental one? Well, well what, you know, well, you could start your, looking. What's your favorite underrated one? One one that you think deserves more attention and, um, and isn't uh, isn't quite okay. on the uh, on the tip of people's tongue. I'm gonna I'm gonna jump into the hour episodes and mention uh, Death Ship by Richard Matheson. Uh, which also stars Jack Klugman, our good friend Jack Klugman. Oh, jeez. And, yeah, and that is a solid hour science fiction episode about a man who's driving the two men under him to such a degree he won't even let them die. And it it, it is the spookiest, most interesting uh, piece of work, I think. Uh, and it's very much ignored. Most people remember the other Jack Klugman episodes. They tend to forget that one, so... I'll throw that one out at you. I remember Saturday Night Live did a very funny sketch that was a takeoff on Eye of the Beholder where uh, the girl unwraps the bandages <laughs> and and it's uh, Pam Anderson. And, <laughs> and the women doctors are going, oh, she's hideous. And the male doctors are going... No, she's hot. <laughs> <laughs> Nick, same question. A favorite episode and favorite episode it, that needs more attention, uh, deserves it, more attention. It is tough to pick a, a favorite. I know. Uh, but um, I'm, uh, at this moment, if I had, I'd say Walking Distances is probably my favorite. Um, that's we've talked about it, you know, enough. enough. And that's just, I mean, Rod Serling. We talked about the sentimentality. I think sure. one of the reasons that Rod Serling does um, uh, endure and does appeal to so many, you know, uh, generations is I don't know of another writer who wore his, wore his heart on his sleeve the way Rod Serling did. I mean, every writer puts themselves into their work. That just kind of goes without saying, but I don't know of any other writer who really did it to the extent that Rod Serling did. Um, if you watch Rod Serling's work, read Rod Serling's work, you know who he was. You know what he was important to him, what he loved, and and that just exudes from the screen, and that's why so many of us just uh, you know, gravitate toward him. So yeah, Walking Distance, I would say, and then I'll cheat and I'll give you two underrated ones. My uh, first underrated, very underrated, is, is an episode called The Trouble with Templeton. It was uh, one of the episodes not written by any of the, what I call the core four, Serling, Bradbury, uh, so Bradbury, Serling, Matheson, Beaumont, or Johnson. It was written by um, e, a, e. Edward uh, Newman. E, 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 what's, the, what's the Mad Magazine character? I forget it. But, yeah. but it's written by somebody else. <laughs> and um, it's, a, it's, it's a very Serling-esque episode about an actor who goes back, he's trying to go back in time to his glory days. I when he's, remember when he's that one. And Who's the, that the, actor? It, Who's uh, that, uh, I'm so terrible with actors' oh, names. God. I can't remember the Gary name this one. Oh, God. Oh, God, Gary, who is yeah. that? Well, we'll keep talking. Gary will oh, find uh, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's, but, he was a, a movie actor from years ago. I can't think of his and name. And the beautiful, but, and, and actually, and Sidney Pollack is in this episode. Oh, he, yes. play, he plays the director in this episode. But the beautiful thing about this one is that the past rejects him and sends him back. Basically, his friends from the past send him back because they know he doesn't belong there and say, go back to your own time. You you know, you live your own life, live in the present. And, and uh, I, I love that one. And the other one that I, I would give you, and it's, uh, I think most people do believe it, uh, do think it's a good episode, but I don't think it gets enough credit, is a Shadow Play by Charles Beaumont. Shadow Play was probably my favorite episode for a long time. For several years, I would have given you that as my favorite episode. And it's it seems a class. It's about it's uh you know about a guy who is continuously executed on the electric chair, and it's a dream. It's a recurring dream, the nightmare that he's having oh, about being executed. Dennis Weaver, Dennis Weaver, exactly. Yeah, he's great in it. And that's like I, I think that should be a top episode, and it's hardly ever talked about as a top episode. Who the hell is that actor? That Brian Ahern. Oh, ah, yes, 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 Brian Ahern, yes. right? <sighs> who was a real you know actor years ago, like a, yes. you know. So he was a perfect choice for that role. Okay, Gilbert, best episode under best underrated episode. Oh well, I I've talked about the same thing. You know, I I love uh, Walking Distance with um, Praise of Pip being a close second. Uh, but I mean, there are so many great ones. It was 
<laughs> I, I remember when, uh, you know, I, Frank called yesterday and said, you know, pick out four episodes. <laughs> you said, just kept texting me for hours. <laughs> yes. That's how yes! visited. Uh, yeah. one, for, one for the angels. They just kept coming in. I just kept Howling going. man. Yeah, I kept going, wait, 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 wait. No, uh, this one's. But great underrated ones. I don't know. I'll probably this will probably hit me when the show's over. <laughs> okay, we'll do an addendum. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I will Actually, go. Actually, you know, you know, it's it's a great thing to bring up. I'm just thinking the Big Tall Wish is something I watch constantly, oh, yeah. whatever it Another comes. Sentimental on. one. Yes. Very sentimental. Uh, there's so many like like that that you just love. Yeah. You know? I'm gonna. We're gonna leave you for last, Dan. Uh, uh, well, I, best I'm for last. I'm, I don't know about that, but I'm going to agree with Gilbert. Uh, Walking Distance and In Praise of Pip is one that I hadn't seen until my dad died. And I was so struck by, by that one because uh, some of the dialogue between the father and the son was, was the exact same dialogue that my dad and I had. Who's your best buddy? And, and it just blew me away that, you know, to, to watch that live in, in that episode. Um, you know, underrated, even though I've had all these moments while you guys were talking about it, I, I, I'm still coming up, trying to come up with one. So, so hit me later with that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is good. We'll, we'll, we'll have something for the fans to look forward to. We'll put it, we'll put it up. Uh, I'll, I'll be the one that picks Time Enough at Last as my favorite episode. Uh, it, mm-hmm. and it, it's tragic. But but it doesn't have a false note in it, and and and, and for an underrated episode, um, a tie, a hundred yards over the rim, which I which I think is just a perfect episode. Yeah, it's a great one, and uh, I like the time travel ones. I like back there the John the John Wilkes Booth episode, the uh, the mm-hmm. with Russell Johnson. Yeah, and with, with one hell of a Jerry Goldsmith score to with go Jerry along Goldsmith with it. music. Yeah, yeah. Wow. yeah. Tell and tell us about the um, tell us about the foundation about the. Uh, you're, you're you're on the you're on the board as is Nick. Right. Well, it was started by um, a group of people that my dad went to school with, and it's uh, to remember my dad's legacy. Uh, Helen Foley was my father's teacher, and actually, she was the one who began it. So, yeah, Nick, you want to chime in here? Sure. And it's been going strong since ni- 1980. Five, I believe, when when Helen Foley started it, uh, mid '80s, and uh, we're going to have a uh, an event this October to celebrate the 60th anniversary, right around the exact actual 60th anniversary. October of, where is everybody? of this year, uh, in Binghamton, which is his adopted hometown, October 4th, 5th, and 6th. Uh, we call it Serling Fest. It'll be the TZ at 60, and uh, tickets will be on sale soon. And you can go to rodserling.com to check that out. What, Gary? What? Uh, this is an obvious question, but uh, what makes him great as a writer? Oh, well, yeah, everything we've been talking about. (laughs) I mean, you know, you're talking about a man who felt very, very deeply about things. To use one of his words, he had a hunger. And that is very clear in everything he's ever written. Nothing is written casually. There's total commitment. So you have heart, soul, and intellect at work. And with The Twilight Zone... The imagination, the fantasy angle on top of everything else. That all added up to one of the greatest writers we've ever known, period. I mean, what else can I say? Would you agree with that, Anne? I, well, I, I'm a little uh, biased. So. <laughs> 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 um, let's plug these wonderful books because they're all terrific. I'm going to start with Gary's first book, Fantastic Television, 
which remains a Bible and a must-have from way back in 1977. Yeah, yeah. I, I wrote that back uh, in 1976 uh, because at the time, uh, my best friend and my, and my late writing partner, Mark Carducci, we wrote Pumpkinhead together. We, we, you know, we were kids who grew up loving this stuff. And we used to sit around, I'd be waiting, we'd be waiting for the bus to pick Mark up, take him home and all that, and we'd be sitting around on a stoop, and we would play a game called Remember the One. Remember the one with Agnes Moorhead fighting the little spaceman? Remember the one? And these were all the different episodes of Twilight Zone and some Outer Limits or whatever. And and it was just our memories. These things were not written about in books or anything. And that's what I said, I've got to write a book for the first time that puts all these shows together so we can remember them and discuss them and talk about them. So that's what fantastic television was. I'm very proud of it. It, it was the first book to deal with, with the subject way back when. And I've done other books over the years, uh, top 100 horror movies, uh, science fiction movies, books about the film industry and the television industry. And I'm currently doing a documentary about a great composer, Billy Goldenberg. Billy Goldenberg um, uh, composed all of Steven Spielberg's early television work, including the Night Gallery two-hour pilot. Uh, and Billy's an amazing composer, and I'm very, very happy to be doing that. So that's kind of what I've been up to in, in that area lately. Okay, and, and uh, Nick's wonderful book, uh, and is, it's, it's, it's about a lot more than The Twilight Zone. It's, it, it, it encompasses the entire career of the man. Yeah, it's the first book that actually covers his entire career in this way. It covers his, uh, from the very first uh, produced teleplay that he had in 1950 all the way through the end of Night Gallery. And it covers them show by show, series by series. And and nobody had uh, had done it in this way before. I mean, when I started this book, nobody had even really had a complete list of everything that Rod Serling had written that had been produced. There was every list that was out there had was missing things, was had gaps and errors and whatever else. So so I really wanted to try to set the, the you know the set the record. Uh, for what Rod Serling wrote that was produced on radio as well as television and feature film and everything else. And so it just covers absolutely everything that it's, he wrote. It's right a through. tome, and it was an absolute <laughs> pleasure to read. Thank you. Yes. Last but not least, Anne, your your memoir, which made me tear up, um, obviously a different take on the man from a, from a very, very personal standpoint. And as I said, it's filled with photographs, his letters home from the war, which are fascinating to read, funny stories. You, 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 you really get an insight uh, in, into the man behind the artist. Um, I can't recommend it enough. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Well, it was, it was a joy to write and, and decades uh, to, to do it. I had started another book a few years after my dad died called um, As I Knew Him, and I hadn't dealt with, I'm, I'm sorry, in his absence, the, the one I did was published was As I Knew Him, um, but I hadn't dealt with, you know, I hadn't even begun to deal with the grief, so I couldn't finish that, but you know, reading about, you know, my dad's letters to his parents, you know, what I was talking about before when he was in training camp and learning about, you know, that other dimension of my dad, the professional side. It was it was just a joy to be with him every day while I was writing it. And and we've also published um, uh, some backlist books of my dad. He novelized um, 19 of the Twilight Zones, and we've republished those that are also available. Oh, great. Are, are you yeah. are you still lecturing occasionally? Are you still doing uh, personal appearances? I am. I am. Not, you know, not as frequently now, but I'm. I'm still called and just did an op-ed for somebody. So it's you know. And again, you know, my dad would be so touched that people and and thanks to all of you guys on this call, he he would be 
just so honored and touched. So thank you. Well, he touched our lives. Boy, did he ever. Gil? Yeah. Well, this is one of those shows where uh, I have to use the old adage that we see in so many of these shows. We haven't even scraped the surface. It's true. This was, uh, we've done 260-something of these, and I have to tell you, all of you, that I, I really want to thank you personally because this was, this was such a fun, rewarding one to do. Oh, it was great to, to, to be in great your company. For me. I, I loved hearing, you know, from you guys. It was fantastic. Uh, work, work that enriched all of our lives and, and should be celebrated. Twilight Zone has popped up on this podcast so many times. So many times. <laughs> yeah. and we've, we've wanted to do this when the anniversary came. It just it seemed like a no-brainer for us. So thanks to all of you. Now, what, watch me screw up all the names. Hi. I, well... I'm. This has been Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast with my co-host Frank Santo Padre and our guests Gary Girani and Nicholas Parisi, and of course Rod Serling's lovely daughter Anne Serling. Thank you, guys, all of you. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye. You unlock this door with the key of imagination. Beyond it is another dimension, a dimension of sound, a dimension of sight, a dimension of mind. You're moving into a land of both shadow and substance, of things and ideas. You've just crossed over into the Twilight Zone. Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast is produced by Dara Gottfried and Frank Santapadre with audio production by Frank Verderosa. Web and social media is handled by Mike McPadden, Greg Pear, and John Bradley Seals. Special audio contributions by John Beach. Special thanks to John Fodiatis, John Murray, and Paul Rayburn. 